Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Cody Keenan has been a speechwriter for the former US President Barack Obama for nearly a decade, rising from being a campaign intern in Chicago to director of speechwriting at the White House. He collaborated with President Obama on the seminal speeches of his terms of office, from State of the Union addresses to his farewell speech in Chicago in January. He continues to work with the former president on his speeches as well as his forthcoming book. At a time when the internal workings of the White House are under more scrutiny than perhaps ever before, there is nobody better placed to give us an insight into how things worked in the Obama years and to interpret for us how they are working now. Cody was in Ireland at the weekend to address the Kennedy Summer School in New Ross, and he made time to come into the Irish Times to talk to us on Worldview. Cody, you're very welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, you worked at the White House for all eight years of the Obama presidency, and, and you, as I said, you were chief speechwriter, I think, for pretty much half of that, the last four years of, right. of, the, of that. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what the, the job description explains itself in a way, I suppose, but what, what did the role involve? Yeah, it, it does explain itself. We had, uh, there were 3,577 speeches and statements over the course of that eight years. Um, and we were lucky to have a great team for all eight years. Uh, you know, people cycled in and out, but we had a core of uh, four speechwriters who stuck around since the first campaign. So, and that's that's helpful for institutional knowledge and, you know, general friendship and coping in a high-stress job. Um but we would write and prepare, you know, drafts on anything from a, a brief statement or, you know, uh, an urgent statement after tragedy to something like the State of the Union Address. Um, and, you know, the president was in- intimately involved in all of his speeches, to say the least, especially the bigger ones where he'd spend a lot of time working on them at night, sometimes rewrite them if he didn't like it. Um, you know, my suspicion has always been if he could get away without having any speechwriters, he would. <laughs> And, and um, what, is the, what are the mechanics involved in writing a major speech? Do you, would you and your team write a first draft or would he, you know, would he give you a sort of uh, set of you know, ideas he wants to explore or engage with? Or how, yeah, how does it work? For, for a big speech, uh, one that we either knew you know, a lot of the country would tune into or a speech on the global stage or one that he just would personally care about, we would sit down with him first, usually about a week in advance. Um, for something like the State of the Union Address, maybe a month or two in advance. And we'd call it the download because he would just kind of talk for you know 30 minutes and we would furiously type and try to keep up and he's a very logical linear mind so he'd often speak in a in a something that gave us a perfect structure for a speech and then we'd go sit down with policy advisors or you know people from the state department if it was a, a speech on foreign soil um you know gather the policy we needed and, and go back cobble together a draft run it through you know, fact checkers and the lawyers, uh, policy people, and ultimately give it to the president. And then he would work on it and ask for more or say, you know, give me less, something like that. And say a State of the Union address, for example, how how long would that be in the preparation? That, when do you start? That we, we'd start gathering ideas from the various cabinet agencies about two months in advance. And, you know, that would ultimately give us several hundred pages of, of policy. And, you know, God bless them, everybody wants, everybody thinks their policy is the most important and that it has to be in the State of the Union address or it's a total loss. Um, and I always hated that speech. And the reason was because it was so difficult to write a coherent message while you're also trying to jam in 60 to 70 policy ideas for the year. Um, and But that's where President Obama was really helpful because he would say, here's the narrative I want to tell in the speech, here's the story I want to tell. And, you know, we always said every year, let's finally make this the State of the Union address where we dispense with the laundry list and just give a thematic speech to America about what the State of the Union really is. We never actually did that, I don't think, until the final year because you just kind of get sucked into business as usual. Sure. Um, but we tried our best. 
Okay. Now I'm going to come back um, in a few minutes to to um, that whole process and, and and what it was like in the White House during those years. But you've, you've come into us actually at a really interesting time in terms of the news um, news developments this week. So I wanted to ask you about, in particular. Um, as we know, uh, President Donald Trump this week, he rescinded an Obama-era programme known in short as the Dreamers programme that protects from deportation almost 800,000 young men and women who were brought into the United States illegally as children. And Trump has given Congress six months to come up with a, a replacement measure. Now, we could spend the whole discussion trying to untangle exactly what mm-hmm. Donald Trump's intentions are here and whether he is trying to protect the Dreamers or, 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 or otherwise. Um, but... What I wanted to ask you about, obviously, was the um, very unusual intervention made by by Barack Obama. And, you know, he has, um, I think it's fair to say up to now, kind of studiously refrained from getting directly involved in politics. But he made an exception in this case. And he issued a statement during the week in which he called um, the decision to rescind the the program wrong, self-defeating, cruel, very strong terms. Um, I presume you you would have had some involvement in the process that led to him issuing that statement. Yeah, he and I talked about it last week about what he'd want to say, and then you know he went through a couple drafts with this week too. Um, this was one of the things you know a, a reporter asked him in his final press conference. I think it was the day before he left office. You know, when would you speak out? And this was specifically one of the issues he said he would speak up about. Um, whenever American values are threatened, whenever various groups of Americans are targeted, he would speak up about it, uh, and he stayed true to his word on that. I mean, it's a fundamental betrayal of American values to kick out these kids who've done nothing wrong. Um, and, you know, President Trump's twisted himself in knots this week with, I think, three different positions on it. And yes. now he's now he's kind of come around to President Obama's original position five years ago, which was, if Congress can't get this done, I'll do something about it. Very bizarre. A bizarre tweet, you know, yeah. after he... Well, Jeff Sessions made the announcement, and right. then he said, yeah, but if you don't fix it, yeah, um, I, you know, I'll do it. And this is why President Obama did deferred action in the first place, because Congress hadn't acted on it, and these kids were at risk. Mm, I think they'd spent 16 years trying to come up with a, 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 an agreement or a, or a measure, and it failed to do so. So it's difficult to see how they might do so in six The thing is, it's, it's by and large a partisan issue. I mean, you, you've got Lindsey Graham and, and Dick Durbin, a Democrat and a Republican, working on it now in Congress. And there, there's been a bill, I think, every year written by Republicans and Democrats, but it always gets blocked by the hard right in Congress. Is it possible, actually, that there is more bipartisan support for it now and that actually it might be done in the six months, um, whereas, you know, previously it, it, the lack of cooperation on both sides had, had, had kind of stalled this. But actually, I get the impression that maybe now, actually, it might be the time. I've learned not to put my faith in Congress uh, to do the right thing, but it, it, it's possible. And, and one reason why is, in, you know, in addition to being a bipartisan issue, it's also, you know, the business community, the faith community, they'll say this is the right thing to do. But while President Obama was in office, you know, uh, Republicans always threatened to get rid of certain programs, repeal Obamacare, get rid of DACA. Well, now that they control every branch of government and any punishment would be on them if, they, if these things happen. I think that's why you may actually see some work on it. You know, if, 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 if people realize that these kids are being deported, there will be an outcry. And I think once, once it happens to specific communities, if you don't know that your next door neighbor is a dreamer, the person that plays with your kids or, you know, the person that teaches your kids science and suddenly they get kicked out. You think, well, I didn't, you know, I didn't want him to go. 
Mm. I wanted the bad people to go. Yes, yeah. And notwithstanding the fact that, that he had actually signposted it at the, at, from the outside, as you said, was it still a difficult decision for him to make, um, to make that kind of intervention? No, not, not on this specific topic, but in, in general, yes. I know what you're getting at, which is the tradition is that former presidents don't criticize sitting presidents. Um, George W. Bush didn't say a bad word about President Obama for eight years, which is something we greatly appreciated because it gives you a lot of leeway and running room to enact your own agenda. This is different, you know, and it, it's hard. And, and you'll have a lot of conservatives uh, criticizing President Obama for breaking tradition by doing that. But you know, Donald Trump has shredded almost every democratic norm there is in America. Uh, that's not an excuse to do it. And President Obama is someone who reveres um, the office and our democracy. But there are just moments where he'll have to stand up and, and do what's right. And now also in the news um, this week or in the past week was um, the letter that President Obama left for President Trump in the Oval Office. Um, and this is a tradition where the outgoing president leaves a letter for the, the incoming president. So, But um, we only got to see what was in that letter this week. I think CNN um, released the details and, um, it, you know, it finished with the line, you know, Michelle and I wish you and Melania the very best as you embark on this great adventure and know that we stand ready to help in any ways that we can. Um, I don't know if there's such a thing as writing a letter through gritted teeth, but was that letter written through gritted teeth? <laughs> I don't know. That, that was, you know, I, I, this was the first time that I'd seen anything in okay. it either. This is the first time that anybody had. Um, it was a letter that he wrote alone and put in the desk drawer that morning and nobody knew the contents but for Barack Obama okay, on good. our team. Um what struck me, I read it this week, just like everybody else on the internet, and uh, you know, it was it was true to his generosity. It, it struck me; it was absolutely statesmanlike and magnanimous letter. I'm not sure it. I got detected that much warmth in it. You know, is that a fair? Was that? Or was that your reading of it as well? I don't know. Um, I, you know, I, I think. Uh, I think his advice was intended with the best of intentions. Okay. Well, anyway, we know that Trump was was very pleased with it because he gave an interview to ABC and he said it was it was beautiful and so so thoughtful. And he thinks he said something like it may be the best letter that any president has ever left for an, another president. Or there you go. So. There you go. It's a tremendous letter. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, and and that brings me then to another, you know, the, the, the contradictions I suppose in, in in Donald Trump. Despite what he said about the letter, he he arrived in office um, and the the Dreamers program as an example of it seemingly hell-bent on destroying everything that Barack Obama achieved during his eight years in the White House. Does that bother Obama very much? Is it much of a worry for him that, um, that this new president could actually undo you know, all of his achievements? I won't go into uh, private conversations I've had with him, okay. but yeah, it's fair to say he's not thrilled that his achievements might be undone. But I, I'd also say that uh, most of them won't be. You know, they've, they've, they've already found it extremely difficult to... You know, they failed to try to repeal Obamacare. Um, they had, they've made a lot of noise with, uh, you know, proclamations and, and executive actions that basically direct the government to do this or that. Those have no legal meaning or standing, you know. Pulling out of Paris, is a, uh, the Paris Agreement is a bigger blow to, you know, America's leadership in the world, uh, an intangible. But, you know, the United States will still hit its targets and we're technically still in the agreement until 2020. I mean... A lot of it is just smoke and mirrors from the Trump administration. Um, and there are a lot of things you can't undo. You know, marriage equality is not something that, that is going to be rolled back. Um, you know, the market is leading the way on clean energy, no matter how hard uh, the Trump administration tries to push coal. Um, and there are a lot of, you know, a, a presidential legacy is also more than, you know, what's been done on paper and policy agendas. It's the fact that an entire generation of children grew up 
you know, seeing a, a president and first lady who looked like them um, and a family that conducted themselves so gracefully for eight years. And, you know, an, another legacy is how young people coming of age all around the world um, act and carry themselves and, and what they do based on an administration that's grew up. You know, you saw a whole generation of people around the world when JFK was president get involved and active in public service and in helping others. And you're seeing that right now in the States. Um, young people are running for office like crazy. You know, the, the so-called resistance movement, um, people are getting involved and active and organized in ways that I don't think they would be if Hillary Clinton was president. I mean, they wouldn't need to. Um, you know, one, one way Donald Trump has actually made America great again is that more and more people are getting involved in active citizenship. Sure. Um, and just on the, you mentioned Obamacare, um, and I appreciate you want to talk about private conversations, but I was, I was going to ask you if he, what his reaction was, or did he cheer when John McCain came into the Senate, you know, or in the Senate floor at that time and gave the thumbs down to effectively derail the Republican attempts to grab, uh, to repeal Obamacare. Was, was that a good moment? You did. I, yeah, oh, yeah, I did. Yeah, I think it was like maybe two in the morning or something, yes. our, our time. And, uh, you know, my wife and I were awake watching C-SPAN at 2 a.m., which is unusual. But, you know, we both let out a huge cheer because we, did, we didn't know for sure. I, I suspected uh, that he might come around and do it because <clears throat> I, have, I have no insight into John McCain's thinking. But I do think um, cancer changes you. You know, I, I worked for Ted Kennedy, um, Senator Ted Kennedy, before he was diagnosed with brain cancer. Um, and I suspect knowing that, you know, you don't have a lot of time left, um, changes the way you look at the world. Mm. And so I was hopeful that, that John McCain would do the right thing. Um, uh, what was it like on the night of the election, uh, when, you know, we all thought Hillary Clinton was going to win even up to early that evening. And then it became clear, um, that she wasn't going to win. What, what was the, where were you on that night and kind of who, who were you talking to? What was the atmosphere like? I was at home. Uh, I was home with my wife and a couple of friends. I had um, two of my colleagues, Ben Rhodes and Dan Pfeiffer over and we were just watching returns and, you know, I, nobody knew. Nobody, there are very few people who can say they called it. Uh, they called it was going to happen. I don't even, I still suspect that President Trump isn't sure he was going to win that night. Um, it was dark. I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was increasingly dark and, you know, I hadn't, either way, President Obama was going to speak the next morning to congratulate the victor and, you know, say some words of unity because either way, half the country was going to be upset by the outcome. So he called around 2.30 in the morning and said, you know, I think we're going to have to prepare something different than what we were thinking about. Um, and I hadn't written anything yet because I was, like everyone else, I was pretty sure that Hillary Clinton was going to win and that would be an easy statement to write. This was a more challenging statement. Um, For sure. Yes. So it's now 2.30 in the morning. So what happened then? Did you have to go and meet, and meet him then and kind of... No, he, he said over the phone some of the things he wanted to say, but then I, I went into the office around 5.30 in the morning just to um, bang out a quick statement for him. And, you know, people were, were trickling in. And it was one of the few times I realized how uh, young our team was, you know, because you don't always think about that when you're working in the White House, and everybody works at a very high level. But uh, looking around, there were a lot of people who were, you know, basically seniors in college on election night 2008. Okay. You know, and their entire political career was working for Barack Obama, and they didn't know loss or defeat like this. So some of us who'd been around longer um, had to give a lot of pep talks. Right. Yeah. So you're talking like uh, people in their late 20s or whatever, that's yeah. kind of the, uh, on, the, on the team. Yeah, right. I remember, you know, my assistant at the time was only, was only 23 years old. Right, yeah. Uh, and it was like the worst thing that ever happened to her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you had, to, you had to tell people, you know, a lot of us who'd, who'd been through political defeat before, um, had to say, you know, you got to get used to this and you pick yourself up the mat and do better. Yeah. And what, what were the considerations involved then in, in putting together that, that, um, that, that particular speech? Because, you know, the balancing act, I mean, because you couldn't uh, pretend that the 
President Obama had not been out in the campaign trail in the previous right. few weeks, saying some very, very direct, you know, uh, things about Donald Trump not being fit for office. So, which I think have borne themselves out to be true things. Um, no, you know, the, the president's he set the tone, uh, and you know, to all staff that morning as well, saying, "Look, uh, this is not our preferred outcome." Obviously, he used more colorful language than that, but we, you know, we have an obligation now to the country, to this office, uh, to the world, to get this transition right. So. You're all going to carry yourselves with your heads held high. You're going to be proud of what we've done because it's going to last. Um, we're going to work with the Trump team to make sure that they hit the ground running and prepared and ready because that's something the world needs. And so I don't want any no shenanigans. You know, don't take the dollar signs off the keyboards or anything like that. And uh, you know, he said the tone with the speech of the morning. He said he wanted it to be generous and graceful and honest. Hmm. And well. Um of course, then the transition duty took place. And since then, we, some, we oftentimes get a picture, at least from the outside looking in, the picture we get is of a, a White House in chaos with rapid changes in personnel, um, tweets from the president that sometimes seem to undo or contradict policy positions he has announced himself or that senior members of his cabinet are pursuing. What does it look like to you? And how different was it, even in terms of organizationally? Because the other thing we've read recently is about how John Kelly, the chief of staff, has tried to impose some kind of organizational structure. I presume those kind of things that he's now doing are just the norm in a normal White House. They're the bare minimum. Um, You know, to have to try to, to shelter the president from reading you know, crazy right-wing news articles is not a normal thing a chief of staff has to do. Um, no, we we were a very disciplined White House. You know, we a we all liked each other, which is helpful. So we had relatively little turnaround or uh, turnover. Um, we planned. You know, we were organized. We 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 had people on staff who liaised with all the agencies. Who you know, there were conference calls with the State Department, the Pentagon every morning, to make sure people were on the same page. You know, before we rolled out policy initiatives, we had full plans that they're ready to go. I mean, this is just simple stuff uh, that they're not doing. And, you know, we can so far, you know, thank goodness, President Trump hasn't had to face a real crisis. I mean, you know, North Korea, yes. Um, Hurricanes, yes. But there come points where, you know, Twitter's not enough. Um, The rest of the world shouldn't have to be studying what the President of the United States is going to tweet each morning or bracing for it, you know. We should be the you know beacon of stability in the world. I mean, North North Korea, I suppose, Manny would say, is is a real crisis. Yeah, yeah, um, and how do you think he's handling that? I, stay off Twitter. You know, when it comes to nuclear weapons, I think is, is should be rule number one. Um, you know, but but a lot of it is, is just wonky stuff too that they're not doing. They've gutted the State Department, uh, which I think is a real tragedy. I mean, it's like it's watching American surrender on the world stage in real time, uh, and it's not just you know people focus on North Korea, it's it's who's dealing with China, who's dealing with the larger Asia region, what is our strategy? You know, Twitter is not a strategy. It's barely a tactic. Um, you're right, that is a real crisis. I didn't mean to gloss over that. But, you know, a lot of the stuff is, it takes a much longer time than a, an hour news cycle. You know, it's it's not, this is why a president shouldn't watch cable news all day long. I said I'd come back to maybe what things were like in, in the White House and the mechanics maybe of of, of putting together um, you know a major address. But maybe particularly the, just to look at his farewell address in, in Chicago, which he, he delivered just just in the last few days of his of his presidency. After my election, there was talk of a post-racial America, and such a vision, however well intended, was never realistic. Race remains a potent and often divisive force in our society. 
in the, the preparation of that speech, I suppose in, in some ways that's almost the legacy speech, isn't it, the, fair, the farewell. So what were they kind of uh, the, the considerations that went into the, the the themes that he would address, you know, that, that night? Yeah, that was another speech where it obviously would have been much different had Hillary Clinton won the election. Um, it would have been shorter for one. And, you know, there's a tradition in um, farewell addresses dating all the way back to George Washington's that it's where it's basically a warning to the future world. Here's what I've learned. You know, and here's what I think America has to guard against. I mean, Washington's was all about uh, protecting democracy. It was about rejecting extremism. It was about, um, you know, especially in, in a country that young, it was about, you know, holding on to these, these norms and making them democratic norms, cherishing it. Um, there have been a lot of threats to our democracy and to democratic values over the past few years in general. And, you know, not just, not just from outside powers and forces, but also economic forces and media forces and um, the silencing of voices and absolutism. Um, and he, he gave a whole series of speeches last year, the State of the Union Address, a couple commencements, and even his Democratic Convention speech warning against this. And this was, this was kind of his speech urging Americans to, you know, to embrace democracy, even when it's difficult. Results don't always come quickly, you know. Um, part of it had to do with President Trump, but but part of it was aimed at the left as well. Um, and you know, hopefully, forty years from now, we'll look back at that speech and say that we we did a good job. Now it was interesting in the clip we played. He discussed racial, you know, e- equality and his disappointment maybe that more progress wasn't made um, during his t- his time in the White House. And since then, things have got worse. Really, are we, you know, we've seen this resurgence of white supremacy and you know people feeling, neo-Nazis feeling, uh, you know, uh, emboldened enough to go out in the streets and protest and so on. How concerning do you think that is to him um, that, that we, you know, we started with such high hopes having the first, you know, African-American president and things now seem to be at an almost worse past than they ever were, than they were for quite a long time. I, you know, I think it's concerning to everybody that the KKK now feels like they can march around with their hoods off. Um, but he, you know, he's rejected the idea before that race relations have gotten worse. Um, you know, certainly it's better than it was during slavery. Certainly they're better than they were during Jim Crow. They're, they're better than the Chicago and Watts of the fifties and sixties. And, you know, the nineties, there was even a a spate of church bombings across the South. Um, what's different now, there, there's still a ton of problems with them. You know, we, we deal with this a lot with, um, you know, shootings and police violence. And what's different now is that it's all televised. You know, cell phone cameras, body cameras, we see this and we should, and it sparks good, important conversations. Um, but you look at, you know, the millennial generation and where we're going. Uh, I feel pretty good about where it'll be, where race relations will end up. And, you know, the, the, the generation of activists now, whether it's Black Lives Matter, um, these conversations are important. They're hard. I mean, it's a lot easier to feel like, race relations are great when nobody's talking about it, you know, but, sure. but that doesn't mean that African-Americans aren't dealing with things on a daily basis that white people don't have to. And leaving aside that particular issue or whether enough, you know, progress was made or whether things have gone backwards or forwards, what's the, um, and again, I'm not asking about private conversations, but his view are, are the view of him and his team of actually his legacy overall. Do you think, um, because I, I'm not sure any presidency began with such high hopes, really extraordinary high hopes and, and, and goodwill. Do you think um, in, in the end was the feeling that actually, you know, he achieved enough in that eight years or would there be a lingering disappointment that perhaps he didn't get more done? No, we have no disappointment. <clears throat> we have no lingering disappointment. I mean, whether it was 
people forget how horrible the economy was when we came in. You know, rescuing sure. the economy, giving another 20 million people health insurance. We're proud of all that stuff. Um, the hopes were probably too high, and he knew that in the beginning, too, you know, that there's not a chance that we're going to meet everybody's expectations here. Um, but he feels good about his legacy. He'll always feel like he didn't get everything done that he wanted to. You know, it's part of who he is. Uh, if we had another eight years, we still wouldn't finish everything he wanted to finish. I mean, he did start off, I suppose, with, with genuine hopes about a new bipartisan approach, and then he yeah. found very quickly that the Republican Party was just not going to cooperate with him on anything. Yeah, that, that must was, have been deeply frustrating. That was a surprise. I mean, uh, he wasn't naive about it, but, you know, when we when we later found out that on election night Republicans met, or on inauguration night Republicans met and said we're going to deny him everything, uh, especially when unemployment was approaching 10 percent and people were losing their jobs, that was a big shock. And, you know, the Senate majority there well, Minority Leader at the time, Mitch McConnell, said, you know, his number one priority was giving President Obama one term rather than two. Um, that's not what I think most Americans wanted. Most Americans wanted jobs at the time. Yes. Um, now, we played one clip there. Another standout moment of his presidency was in 2015 when he delivered a eulogy at the funeral of Pastor uh, Clementa Pinckney, who was one of eight people who had been shot dead in a, in a racially motivated attack on a church in Charleston. South Carolina, so he delivered the eulogy and, and, and then this happened. Amazing grace How sweet the sound That Um, th that was an extraordinary moment. I presume the decision by him to sing Amazing Grace wasn't taken off, off the cuff, was it? Or, or had there been a discussion about it? That was extraordinary. E-flat's a hard note to hit. Um, <laughs> yeah. no, the rest it, of it was really good, actually. Just that, there was that note at the very start. Yeah, yeah that's, I mean, that's one of yeah. my favorite speeches. And yeah. it's also one of the ones um, that he wrote the most of himself. We... <clears throat> I'll, I'll admit, what after you know after those shootings, um, that was a pretty dark one because it was one of the ones that, that was that was racially motivated, and you know, like we were just talking about, are we going to get sucked back down into some of the worst bits of our history? Because um, he was a white supremacist in a black church, and you know, the black church has deeper meaning for African Americans than just a place you go every Sunday. You know, it's always been a sanctuary from the outside world. Um, and President Obama actually knew Clementa Pinckney personally. So that, that was tough. And we were, you know, we talked about it early on, uh, what we're going to say. And he'd given so many eulogies after mass shootings that we were kind of tapped out. Um, and then something extraordinary happened. The, the family members of the victims all forgave the killer in court uh, on national television. And I, what an extraordinary moment. I don't know. I still don't know if I could do that, you know, if somebody murdered somebody I loved. Um, and the president said, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about grace. And it was also a week where, you know, people started having open and honest conversations about the Confederate flag and what it meant. And this is what I was getting at before, where if we, if we don't have these conversations, you just assume that everything's fine. But, you know, think about being an African-American person who has to walk past the South Carolina State House every morning and see that flag flying and what it means to them. And we actually had grown up conversations that week. The country did. It felt good. It felt like we were breaking free of the past. And, you know, Nikki Haley, who our UN ambassador now, who was governor of South Carolina at the time, um, ended up taking down the Confederate flag after yes. that in the State House. And so um, the president said, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about grace. I want to talk about having an open heart. And so I, I did my best on a draft based on his input. And uh, he tore up the last two pages and rewrote them himself. And um, he was the one that wrote in Amazing Grace, the full lyrics. And so 
it was it was a wild week. That that Thursday, the Supreme Court upheld Obamacare for the second time. That Friday, the Supreme Court uh, found a right to marriage equality in the United States, uh, which I know Ireland beat us to the punch at. And then that afternoon, we had to fly down to Charleston to give that eulogy. And the president said on the helicopter that morning, you know, if it feels right, I might sing it. And I said, okay, <laughs> you know, that, that you do you. Um, but no, we, you do not write into the speech, you know, in brackets, sing this part. That's entirely up to him. He has to feel it. And, you know, uh, you get in there and you, you could hear it on the, on the audio. There are people in the background yelling, sing it, Mr. President. It was a black church. You know, the, the, the organist was playing during the speech. There was a guy on guitar during the speech. Guys were in shades. You know, the, the, the second he started speaking, you're like, of course he's going to sing it. Yes, it was an amazing moment. So, so essentially he, just, he said, I'm thinking of doing this, but nobody tried to talk him out of it. Oh, or heck no. Like that. no, 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 no. And we knew he could sing. We'd heard him do a little Al Green before. So Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I might ask you about that actually in a second. But, but uh, was there ever a time when you did actually feel you had to try to dissuade him from saying something or you felt, you know, uh, like would you ever have an argument with him? Or how, how, do you, how do you tell the president of the, United, of the United States, you know, that he's wrong about something if you think he is? Uh, you, you just kind of got to suck in your gut and brace yourself. Um, it's a hard thing to do, to, to tell the, the President of the United States no or to argue with him. But he, he, he's one of the guys who wants to hear every voice in the room. If you don't speak up at a meeting, he'll call you out on it like a teacher giving a pop quiz. You know, what do you have to say, Cody? So always be prepared. Um, I, no, I was fortunate that he's got pretty good judgment. So there were very few times when I would ever say, I recommend we don't do this. I mean, I, you know, I can't remember specific lines now, but I remember every once in a while I'd say, you know what? I get what you're trying to say here, but this is the type of thing that Fox News will have a field day with for a week, and it'll throw us off everything else. And, um, why don't we just say this in a slightly different way? Something like that. And he'd always he'd always give me a hard time and say, he'll know exactly what you mean, but yeah. he'll still give you a hard time on purpose and say I don't. He'll say I don't understand. Explain that to me, and you know what he's doing. But um, and then he'd finally say, okay, well I, I think it's sad that you don't think we can speak openly and honestly, but okay. Okay, yeah. So I <laughs> and guess then you, one, and then you walk away, you slither away, feeling bad about yourself. <laughs> um, but is he is he is he somebody who can, is prepared to concede a, a point in a moment? I often find even in, you yes. know you meet certain types of leaders who you can make a point, but they won't acknowledge it there and then. You know, you, you'll find later on you had a result, but he's prepared to say, yeah, actually, you're right about that. Yeah, he'll actually he'll suggest something and say, you know, I think this is the right course, but I but I, I'm actually here to hear your input. Let me know if if you think I'm wrong here. Um, I'd say I'd, it's it's rare that I win those arguments, but but he wants to hear them, you know. Yes, um, he, he comes across in that clip uh, we just played um, as an incredibly imp- empathetic and, war- and warm person, and and he did in his speeches generally. It has been said though that in private he's actually quite reserved and maybe not so comfortable around people, and that he he's a more solitary type figure who prefers to work alone. Is that true, or um, is he a guy you can get along with? Yeah, no, no, it's yeah. not true. He <clears throat> there are two different things. He he does like being alone. He does like working late at night. Those are his best hours. You know, the best stuff he's ever written is usually around two in the morning. Um, but he still loves people. He just doesn't, he doesn't need attention. You know, he doesn't yes. crave um, yes men around him. But but you see him with children. You see him with, you know, people who've lost their jobs. He certainly, he was, he was probably the only person, he's the only person in America to eulogize every victim of a mass shooting. And you know, he spent three hours at Newtown High School with the family members of the victims, every single one, before going out to give that speech. And that was one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen. Um, so, no, it's like he's he's totally warm. I mean, he's when the cameras are off and everyone's gone, he's the, he's the same person, uh, just a little more colorful and laid back, you know. You mentioned singing the, the Al Green. I mean, what, were there many occasions where you kind of had an opportunity to socialize with him or where there were... 
Yeah, there were. He, the, he, the president and the first lady were. They were. They're wonderful to their staff, and they took care of us. You know, at, at Christmas time, they'd throw parties for staff. They'd have us over into the residence every once in a while. Um, the night before we left office, uh, the president and first lady had uh, all eight-year staffers and senior staffers up to the actual res- part of the house where they live uh, for drinks and just to walk around and hang out on the Truman balcony and. You know, he just he still wanders around the office today. It's just now we have an office of far. We don't we don't have two thousand people walking around anymore. And now there's just a handful of us. Right, um, and uh, actually, he had uh, you, you got you got married, I think, when you were in the White House, and he had all your guests around. To, yes, for, yeah. um, on the day. Yeah, that was that was one of the nicest things he's ever done for me. I, I met my wife at the White House in 2011, and we got married last year. Um, and he, you know, he he actually invited himself to the wedding, and, and so did the first lady. And then he walked it back and said, you know, I, I forgot that this will, we're going to have to close, they're going to have to close off two blocks around the wedding and sure. everyone has to go through security, so forget it. Why don't you just have your wedding party and your parents here to the White House in between the ceremony and the reception? So we all got to go to the White House and we kept it a surprise from everybody um, that we were going. We came up with an elaborate ruse that we were going to go back to the place where we met in the executive office building and take some photos there with our photographer. But So we snuck everybody into through the Rose Garden into the outer Oval Office and uh, the president's, uh, the deputy chief of staff at the time came in and said, he'll be down in five minutes. And one of uh, my wife's bridesmaids said, who, Obama? And everybody started freaking out. And it was really cool. And he was, he was, he took photos of everybody and shook everybody's hand and spent time with people. And it was a really nice moment. He great. didn't have to do that, but he did. Sure, great. And now there was one other uh, specific speech I wanted to ask um, about, and um, it was the very funny. It was very funny at the time. There's a, an element of who's laughing now when we look at it again. But I think I know where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> this is the, the, the White House Correspondents' Dinner, I think, in 2011. The, the roasting he gave to Donald Trump, who was in the room. All kidding aside, obviously we all know about your credentials and breadth of experience. Um, for example, uh, no, seriously, just recently, in an episode of Celebrity Apprentice... At the steakhouse, the men's cooking team uh, did not impress the judges from Omaha Steaks. And there was a lot of blame to go around, but you, Mr. Trump, recognized that the real problem was a lack of leadership. And so ultimately, you didn't blame Little John or Meatloaf. You fired Gary Busey. And these are the kind of decisions that would keep me up at night. There was a lot more uh, on, on those lines, and uh, now it's very interesting to look at them now because because Trump was in the room, and it's really obvious that he's not enjoying it, and no. he's he wouldn't be known for his thick skin, uh, the, the current president, I think. And you've heard it said, I'm sure, that some people say that that was the moment Donald Trump decided I'm definitely going to run for president. So. Um, uh, I don't know if you were involved in that particular speech, but if you were, do you, do you feel any responsibility now for this, the state expel, the world is in? Expel the speechwriters. It is our fault. Um, no, I mean, nobody at the time the next morning said, you know what, you guys really ticked him off. He's definitely going to run for president in five years. Um, do we? Do I feel any responsibility? No. Um, and plus he deserved it. You know, <laughs> this, was, uh, this is a guy still who began his political career by... Uh, with racist insinuations that the president of the United States was a foreigner. Um, and 
you know, offering millions of dollars to get show me your birth certificate. He was basically asking the first black president to show his ID. Uh, so no, I don't feel bad about it. I wish we went harder. Um, and uh, no, no regrets there then, so certainly. Can I ask, where do you see this presidency going? We, we, we had um, Maureen Dowd from the New York Times in here earlier this week, and she said she can't make up her mind whether post-Trump we will return to some kind of normality or whether we've all become so hooked now on this idea that every day there's a crisis coming from the White House and political discourse has changed so much. Do you think, um, what's your own view about that? Do you, um, do, you, do you think he has changed the landscape in a, in a way that we'll never recover from? Yeah, I don't know. I, I've thought a lot about this. Um, I, I think I think we're resilient. I think our democracy is resilient. You know, but a lot of these trends have. This didn't all start with Donald Trump. I mean, you know, Fox News and the Republican Party have been stoking racial resentment and you know lies and and you know crime is out of control. Immigration is out of control for twenty years, and this is all the culmination of that strategy. Um, Twitter's changed things, the media environment's changed things, but, you know, all the hoopla um, is just in, you know, it's, it's it, what am I trying to say? It's, it's, it's just at the top. It's the media, it's Washington. Most Americans go about their day, you know, go to work, sometimes work two jobs, don't even have time to watch the news and be obsessed with the news all day long like people in Washington are. Um, and so I think, yes, we will bounce back from this and establish some sense of normalcy. I mean, you know, one other thing I think about a lot is it's not normal that you have to talk about the president every single day. You shouldn't have to. You shouldn't have to think about him every single day. You should just know that whoever he or she is, they're getting the job done, you know. And there were days where we didn't have Barack Obama making any public appearances, and that was okay. And the country survived. You know, you don't have to wake up every morning worried about what your president is tweeting now, who he's attacking now as he putters around in his bathrobe. Um, that's not normal, you know. And I, I, I suspect whatever president comes next, I mean, Americans have big swings. You know, from the elder Bush to Bill Clinton was a big swing. From Clinton to Bush, big swing. Bush to Obama, Obama to Trump, certainly. We may make a swing back to somebody who's completely boring. Yeah, and actually, there was a line in a recent morning that column that um, you know she said the values he's he's teaching us values. The values he's teaching us are the ones that uh, we cherish, but they're not his values. So the, 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 you may get that sort of reaction. Is what you're saying? I think that um, he's making us realize what what's important. You yeah, know? hopeful people. You know, I'm hopeful people watch this. And you know, I, I don't want to put my kids through another four years of this. Now he spends a lot, of, a lot of time on Twitter. You're not a stranger to uh, social media yourself, and you're not afraid. Uh, you know, whereas the President Obama has to be uh, circumspect. You obviously don't. I, I had a quick look. I didn't have to go very far back, you know, to find some of your tweets um, about Trump. There was a, um, and they're they're very entertaining. I might say so. You had a recent one. Watching Trump ramble when he has no clue what he's talking about is like riding in a driverless car with no doors or belts at 100 miles per hour. Um, does it cause? Uh, it doesn't cause any difficulty for you or for for um, Barack Obama. That you're entirely free, are you, to say whatever you like? I mean, it doesn't. Uh, it hasn't caused any trouble until this podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I took. Uh, I've been on Twitter since 2007, but I sent my first tweet this year. I, I had the patience okay. to never tweet while I was in the White House because I didn't want to cause any problems for the president or for our communication strategy and whatnot. Um, I feel free and unfettered to say whatever I want now. You know, I, I'm. When I when I tweet, I tweet for me. I, you know, like even Drago and Rocky Four, I tweet for me. Um, the, my, none of my tweets should bear have any bearing on Barack Obama. Okay, so he's never had to you know rec- 
cause or occasion to sort of call you up and say he's commented on it, he's right? commented on some of my tweets and said he enjoyed them. So that's okay. so far so so far so good. <laughs> okay, and can I ask you just finally then about his his plans? Um, uh, what, what kind of plans does he have, and what? Uh, and, um, what way does he think maybe he can influence, you know, political discourse and, and influence the world, you know, mm-hmm. for the better? Um, yeah, one one reason that uh, former presidents usually so quiet in the first year is because they're so busy. You know, uh, the library takes about five years to plan and build. Um, he's starting up the foundation now, which will, you know, he's going to devote the rest of his life to uh, training young leaders and active citizens, not just in America, but around the world. Um, there were some programs he began as president in uh, South America, Southeast Asia, Europe, um, Africa, to train new generations of young leaders and innovators. Um, and we're taking those programs, and he's going to, you know, kind of house them at the foundation and travel the world and, 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 you know, connect people and lift people up. And he's really looking forward to that. But that takes time to get off the ground and get going. And he's still up at 2 in the morning writing his book. Um, he, I, I will freely admit he's doing pretty much all the writing. Uh, I've, I'm kind of back to like a glorified assistant, really, when it just comes to the writing. And does he does he show you uh, drafts of what he's written? He does, yeah. It's great stuff. It's great <laughs> and stuff. Is, it's, a, is a, it's a memoir of his time at the White House, is it? Or is it, is it broader than that? Um, I, 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 can't, I can't get into it only because uh, I can't afford the legal bills from getting sued into oblivion. So. Okay, well, well, can you tell us when, when can we expect to see it? Is there a timetable for it? We don't know yet. Okay. Don't know yet. Okay, well, time will tell. Cody Keenan, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. That's it for this week. Dave McKechnie will be in this chair next week. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.